and it just you, you're going to learn. You're going to learn a lot. Does anybody know what this is? Mosaic. It's a mosaic. It's a mosaic found this week. Found this week in Syria. It is a depiction. This is a depiction of the Trojan Wars, and all these are names of people and their faces that participated in. Uh, they've uncovered approximately 50 feet of it. Uh, they estimate that it's 1,300 square feet in size. Last week I mentioned that they found, uh, they found a mosaic in Gaza last week, and the guy's trying to get money out of it, but they found a, a one in Gaza that they had uncovered it was almost, uh, almost 800 square feet. It was Byzantine. I don't know exactly when the Trojan... Under the Trojans, they found it in Syria. I don't, I don't know the answer to that. If you, if you Google that this afternoon, you can read a lot on it. It's, it, it was 800 AD. Is that the Trojan War? Uh, something back there. Okay, so if that's true, so if that's true, then that's 200 years, 200 years earlier than what we're talking about with Samuel. That's what's so amazing about Samuel is linking all this, and where this all works, where it all fits together. Uh, I'm just amazed uh, going back and, and reading and teaching. You know, I've read Samuel all my life. Uh, but going back and reading this and studying, just trying to, trying to understand it, it truly is mind-blowing uh, what happens. So we're in 1 Samuel chapter 11 and 12 today. And if you, first, as, as a... Sunday school teacher uh, who likes to go over a lot of new stuff and introduce new things. Curse the the way I prepare is cursorily. I will read out of out of the Bible what I'm supposed to talk about for next week, and I will look at it and go, "Well, that's going to be awful." <laughs> I mean, that's not uh, re reading uh, Samuel 11 and 12. There's not a lot in. Here. If you really start looking at it, then I go to a couple of places, and uh, you can go there as well. Um, online, there is a guy by the name of Dr. Thomas Constable. Dr. Constable is—he could be dead now. All right. I mean, both of these guys are retired uh, Old Testament professors from Dallas Theological Seminary. And if you know anything about Dallas Theological, Dallas Theological, it's a Baptist seminary, but it is rooted in languages. It's rooted in Old Testament languages and New Testament languages. And they don't let anyone, if you go to, well, I don't see Georgia, but I, you, you can't, I can't even say Lipscomb now, because Lipscomb does not, you can, get a, you can easily get a PhD at Lipscomb and not take any language. Uh, to be a Bible professor and not to have any, not to be rooted in languages at all, uh, is anathema, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, but Dallas Theological, you can never opt out of languages. I don't care what, I don't care if you're third year PhD, I don't care what you're taking languages, because that's how you are rooted in this stuff. Um, let's see what slide. Oh, this, well, We'll get to this in a minute, but uh, this is a photo that I actually took from um, uh, 
Hebrew University in Jerusalem at Mount Scopus. This is inside where they have the um, um, Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls. This is one of the Dead Sea Scrolls scrolled up. Look at what they had to deal with. And as they unrolled it, it just fell apart. You know, the, the original scrolls were written on sheep skin or some kind of animal skin. Then later it became papyrus. This is papyrus. Papyrus doesn't age well. So after 3,000 years, papyrus pretty much falls apart. And they have that whole um, division where the Dead Sea Scrolls is, is dedicated to documents all over the world uh, taking them back because they know how to inject some kind of chemical to make them stay again. It's it's truly, truly amazing where, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were housed. But I thought I just thought that was interesting. Um, that that you should see that because we actually are gonna talk about one of the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls today. So back to the map if I can find the map. What did I do with the map? Okay, let me just tell you what this is real quick. This is a on, on this computer, this is the only only um, picture of this area that I can give you. But this is this is the top of Masada. That's the Dead Sea in the background. But I just want you to see how desolate, how deserty this is. There's nothing there. To to understand how anything could live there is well beyond me. Uh, it's just dry, arid, parched. And in the middle of all that is this. Larry, what's that? En Gedi. That's En Gedi. And what does En Gedi mean to you? Uh, goat, something. Spring, Spring of the Spring of the wild goats. That's, That's it. Exactly yeah. what it means. Of all because, things, yeah. I, and honestly, you drive up there today, and there's goats everywhere. Because that's the only source of water they have. And this is actually a lower fall, but I just want Dr. White. This is actually a lower fall, but I just wanted you to see. Um, just wanted you to see that in the middle of all that nothingness, and you can't. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. There's nothing around it that lives in the Dead Sea. You can't get anything from it. They get. They drain minerals from it, and some. Some people make uh, salts, make uh, bath salts. Yeah, bath salts and lotions and all they, they make a they make a zillion dollars right there. So. Anyway, let's go back to the map. There's one of them. Where's the map I got? I had it earlier. It's that slide right. Oh, it's one more. Okay, this one. So where we're talking about, just to give you an idea, this is Jericho. Jericho. Today we're going to be talking about Gilgal. What I want you to see is when they came out of Egypt, they came on this side, they crossed the River Jordan, and went immediately to they couldn't go to Jericho. Why? Because the Jericho people didn't want them. And so they went to Gilgal, and that's where a lot of stuff happened. So let's start, let's start reading in chapter 11 just for a second. And we're, all this will come into focus. Uh, I'll leave this map on there. Um, Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh Gilead. 
And all the men of Jabesh Gilead said, Make a treaty with us. And we'll, we'll, we'll serve you. We'll be subject to you. Right here on the front row, Jason. <laughs> and we'll be subject to you. But Nahash the Ammonite replied, I will make a treaty with you only on one condition. That I can gouge out the right eye of every one of you so as to bring disgrace on all of Israel. Think about that. This, uh, I, I, I promise, I, I just put these slides in during the week as I was thinking about what, what we might talk about this morning, and I was really going to organize them until the ball game happened last night, so, I, <laughs> so this, this is where it is. But this is for Kusama, which is a commentary on the book of Samuel found at all the pews, found at Qumran. Qumran. This is part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Now really, the Dead, Dead Sea Scrolls didn't really do anything for us um, theologically. Except stuff like this. Uh, uh, let's read this just for a second. Now Namish, the king of the Ammonites, had been oppressing the Gadites and the Reubenites grievously gouging out the right eye of each of them, allowing Israel no deliverer. In other words, they didn't let anybody else come in. Nobody came to Israel's aid, but they gouged out all their eyes. No men of the Israelites who were across the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan, there was not a single Israelite that remained whose right eye, Nahash, the king of the Amorites, had not gouged out. Except 7,000 men who had escaped the Ammonites and entered into Jabesh Gilead. Think about that. Why would, what, what purpose would be to gouge out your eye? Gouge out one of their eyes? I'm sorry? Yeah, that's all. It's all. You're helpless. If you hold your shield, it, you would hold it over your eye. You, it would be over your eye. You would have, only have one eye. You could, wouldn't have any. You know, I played basketball with a guy that had, uh, as a young man, uh, had a firework. A bunch of kids playing had fireworks. <laughs> okay, why would that do that? On we're on. Aren't we on this? Okay, sure. Okay, um, but I played basketball in high school with a guy that, that had had his eye, one eye poked out. He had a glass eye, literally. And Mean Dean Grayson, and Mean Dean did this all the time. And he was a deadly shot, but he could I mean, he could not see on this side, so he just constantly. All of Israel was like that, except for the people at Jabesh Gilead. Let's keep going. Give us seven days so we can send messengers throughout Israel. If no one comes to our rescue, we will surrender to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah, where Saul was, now that let's so Saul is Saul king yet or not? This is a great analogy. He's just like King Charles. He ascended to the throne 
Saul was anointed by Samuel. And then, what was all that deal about him hiding in the baggage? What, what was that all about? Anybody else? What did, what did Samuel do? He said, I tell you what, we're get, let's get all of Israel together. We're going to gather at Mizpah, all of Israel, and we're going to draw lots. And we're going to see who God chooses. And so they started with the smallest crowd, the Benjamites, and went family by family and drew lots. And the lot fell on Saul. Him specifically, God chose him in front of all the people, and all the people looked at him. He's the king, and so they—I'm not even sure they were aware that Samuel had already anointed him, that God had already chosen him. But God chose him in front of all the people, so that the people would know, "Here's my man." So Samuel immediately goes—I mean, get Samuel. So Saul immediately goes back to his house. In Gibeah, and he's plowing just what all kings do. Well, I'm sure King Charles today is working the farm. <laughs> because King Charles is going to be coronated when? In a year. It's about a year. Yeah. And I don't know if that's biblical or not. But that's what Saul was not yet. He's going to be in chapter 12, he's going to be, but not, not yet. Verse 6, when Saul heard their words, wait, verse 5, just then Saul was returning from the fields behind his oxen. He asked, what's wrong with you people? Why are you crying? And they repeated to him what the men of Jabesh had said. When Saul heard these words, the Spirit of God came upon him in power and he heard Josh's sermon. He was righteously angry. He took the pair of, this is me. I told Josh this morning I'm going to have to go to the slaughterhouse every time I watch Titans football. Um, he took a pair of oxen, he cut them to pieces. He sent the pieces by messengers throughout Israel proclaiming, this is what I'm going to do to the oxen of any of you who do not follow Saul and Samuel. You, think, you, may, you may think you're farmers. You may think you're... I'm going to kill every one of them if you don't come and help us. Then the terror of the Lord fell on the people and they turned out as one man. And Saul mustered them at Bezek. The men of Israel numbered 300,000 and the men of Judah 30,000. And they told the messengers who had come, save the men of Jabesh Gilead, by this time tomorrow when the sun's hot, you will be delivered when the messengers went and reported to the men of Jabesh they were elated. These 7,000 guys still had their eyes. They're going to get to keep their eyes. They said to the Ammonites, tomorrow we'll, we'll surrender you. You can do whatever you want to, whatever seems good. So the next day Saul separated the 300 and whatever thousand into three divisions. During the last watch of the night, between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m., he went into the Ammonites' camp and slaughtered, that's a definitive word, he slaughtered them until the heat of day. Those who survived were scattered so that no two of them were left together. 
And what were, what were the Israelites saying to themselves? <coughs> yep. That's our king. That's what we wanted all along. That's it. Then the people said to Samuel, who, who, uh, who was it that asked, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring these men to us and we'll put them to death. Because there's always doubters in every crowd. And Saul said, No one else will be put to death today. This is the day that the Lord has rescued Israel. He's a leader. See, I think Saul, reading Saul and knowing what I know about Saul, we all think, what's your impression of King Saul? Anybody? Insane. Insane? Insecure. I'm sorry? Insecure. Insecure. That's my point, Gil. My point is, he is head and shoulders taller than everybody else. He's good looking. He's a warrior. He's righteously, uh, he's righteous for God. He seeks after God. Even when Saul gets in trouble, he's doing it to obey God. You know what I'm saying? There's just something wrong with Saul. What's wrong with him? His heart is not in the right place. His heart is not in the right place. He's all about Saul. For God sees, not as man sees, God looks on the heart. That's the whole point of you if you know if you want to skip the rest of Sunday school, that's all, that we don't get any more theological. God looks at your heart. Um Oh, yes, sir. God make a mistake? You know, no. <laughs> Chapter 12 will <laughs> Because, Because, quite honestly, a cursory reading of this, of this text would lead you to believe God messed up. The people messed up. We put our faith in the wrong man. We did the wrong thing. But Samuel, old, wise Samuel, is trying to teach the people something. And I didn't realize it at first. When I read through it, I went one way, the way I think most of us would go. But when I read these old professors, Dr. Tom Constable, by the way, I need to finish that. I, 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 I just go from place to place and I don't ever finish. Dr. Tom Constable has a website called Dr. Constable's Notes. It's hosted by the Plano Bible Church in Plano, Texas. I'm not sure if he's dead or alive, but Dr. Constable has a commentary on every book in Scripture. And it's not just a watered-down commentary. It's not like... It's theological. I mean, he, he is a brilliant theologian. The other one that I would read is uh, Dr. Bob Deffenbaugh. Uh, uh, Dr. Bob is also a retired teacher from Dallas Theological. He's got an Old Testament department. I can't imagine being in an Old Testament department like that. Uh, they're incredible. And all of his stuff is found on Bible.org. But anytime you're going to study anything, look at what he's, look at what he's got to say. He'll, he'll set you right. And both of these guys don't come to the same conclusion here. The point is, God chose, knowingly chose, an imperfect God allowed, He allowed 
He knew what was going to happen, and God... This is what other kings look like. Look, when they cross... Now, where am I here? I want to be at the map. Okay, so... I'm trying. I, I, I'm sorry. You want you want to operate this? Yeah. So so we're all right in this area right here. Notice Jericho, Jerusalem is 14 miles from the Dead Sea, 3,000 miles up. There's a mountain range right through here, and it's just all desolate, rocky. There's no trees. There's no nothing. And so when they when they pass, what is my point about that? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it will come to me, and I'll regret not being able to. Just everybody stare at the map. It'll come to me. Well, you know, see the Amorites, the Amorites over here, the Moabites are on this side. All those that, that attack Israel, the Edomites, would not allow Israel to go through their uh, kingdom on the way to the on the way to the, oh, I know what my point was now. When they crossed over at Jericho, there were 31, 31 different kingdoms in Canaan. That's the best we can count. 31. And so the children of Israel were given these areas. You need to take your area. 31. Jericho was a walled city. If you'll go back and read Joshua 4 and 5, which, which I did, that's fascinating. They shut, When they saw the children of Israel, and you know, the children of Israel were coming over there, there's 2 million of them. They started with 70. Jacob had 70. He took to Egypt in, in the, 40, uh, the 400 years. They turned into 2 million people. And they're on, on the other side of Jordan, and they're coming straight for Jericho. What did Jericho do? They locked the doors. Said, you cannot come in. Let's keep reading. So Samuel said to all of Israel, I've listened to everything you've said, and you've set me up, and you've had a king set over you. Now you have his king as your leader. As for me, I'm old and gray. My sons are here with you. I've been your leader from my youth till this day. Here I stand. Testify against me. Just tell me what did I do wrong? How did I represent God in the wrong way? Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey? But who have I cheated? Who have I oppressed? For whom have I accepted a bribe to make my eyes shut? If I've done any of these things, I'm here to make it right. You've not cheated or oppressed us. You have not taken anything from anyone's hands. Samuel said to them, The Lord is witness against you, and also his anointed witness this day. You have not found anything in my hand. So what Samuel is saying is, I'm getting ready to plead the case for God. I'm going to plead God's case and tell you why, you know, uh, Walter Brueggemann, who is a fabulous Old Testament scholar, I was at Pepperdine, I watched him. And he's in his late 80s, and he's walking up and down this aisle full of a, a place where there's 500 preachers. And we're all just mesmerized this old man. And he's just quoting the prophets, and he's just wailing. Oh, Israel, 
Why have you done this to my people? And he just and he, and he stopped in the middle of it. He goes, "Don't think I'm mad at you. I'm a prophet. God is mad at you. God is." And that's what Samuel's getting ready to do to these people, and they're not going to like it. He is witness, they said, and Samuel said to the people, "It's the Lord who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your forefathers up from Egypt." Now, now then, stand here because I'm going to confront you with the evidence before the Lord and all of His righteous acts performed by the Lord and your fathers. After Jacob entered Egypt and cried to the Lord for help, the Lord sent Moses and Aaron, who brought your forefathers out of Egypt and settled them in this place. I've missed something that's really important. Where does that... Oh, I'm back, back at verse 15. Listen to this. So all the people went to Gilgal. Samuel sent them to Gilgal. Why Gilgal? He's been sending them to Mizpah. Remember where he raised the Ebenezer? was right outside of Mizpah. Why now all of a sudden does he want to go to Gilgal? That's what these old professors, how they got them. Gilgal is where, where Joshua brought them. It's where the first covenant, I'm sorry, crossing. The crossing. But at the crossing, what did Joshua make the people do? I'm sorry? Okay, they brought stones out of the middle of, of the Jordan. And they put up another, which was really the first, what, what we call in Hebrew, Masaboat. Masaboat is a memorial stone like the Ebenezer. They got 12 stones and brought them out. Does anyone remember how they brought the Ark of the Covenant through the Jordan? I'm sorry? Mount Hermon up here, it, there is a ski resort on Mount Hermon. It's snow covered year round. Okay? That is where the water for the Jordan comes from. It's icy cold. It drops 3,000 feet from Hermon to the Salt Sea, which is 700 feet below sea level. So, it's in many places, it's moving. And it's icy cold. And they've got the Ark of the Covenant balanced on a pole. And if it touches you, what happens? You're dead. So when the first priest who was carrying the Ark of the Covenant stepped in the water, what happened? The Jordan parted at Gilgal. The Jordan parted. They set up stones. They set up the 12 Masaboat. And then immediately, Joshua had every male circumcised. They'd been wandering in the desert for 40 years. God did not let any of them live except Caleb. Caleb. Joshua and Caleb. They were the oldest. They had already been circumcised. At Simon. He had all the males circumcised at Gilgal. And that is what we call in, in Hebrew a Brit covenant. This is a covenant. Not to be confused with bris, which is what? When you circumcise little male babies. Same deal. 
It's a covenant. The Abrahamic covenant you are accepting. Now, if you went to Genesis 15, do I got 15 minutes. If you went to Genesis 15 and you looked at the first covenant, the blood path, what happens? What is the what is the deal of the covenant? God told Abraham, go get doves, sheep, oxen, cut them in half and put the pieces, just spread the pieces apart where you could walk through there. But spread the pieces apart, let all the guts and all the blood and all that, let it all walk, all be through there. And then Abraham, you wait for me and we'll have a covenant. Because the idea of the covenant is we both walk through and we turn around and we look and we say, if either of us break the covenant, may it be unto me as it is unto this. You're willing to die. This is what I told everybody in classes way back. This is what I was going to make all my sons and daughters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you just look at it. I mean, one, one way or another, somebody's going to die. That's what this is. That's exactly what this is. He's bringing into mind the covenant. Why Gilgal? The whole thing I missed is Samuel is saying to the people, who was your king at Gilgal? Who went out? Who got righteously indignant and went out for you at Gilgal? God did. That's what you missed in this whole thing. Is that you have looked 1 Samuel 8, 7. Somebody read 1 Samuel 8, 7. <laughs> It's a great turning point in the book of Samuel. Somebody read it out loud. And the Lord told him, listen to all that the people are saying to you, and it's not you that they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. They rejected me. And now Samuel, in this speech, is being righteously indignant for God. He's telling them what he thinks about. Yeah, you got your king. He's a good guy. He looks the part. He looks like all the other 31 kings that are out here. No problem. God needs to be the king. God needs to be the king. You know, in that, uh, I just think about how many times in the book of Judges they'd have a judge. God would send a judge and they'd do good. They'd go out and wipe out the Philistines. Then that judge would die and they would go back to serving the bells and the astra and all that other stuff. Because that's a cool religion. And the Philistines would come back and just whack them. Happened over and over and over. And Samuel is putting an end to it. He's trying to put an end to it. <clears throat> Verse 9. But they forgot the Lord their God. He sold them into the hands of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, to the hands of the Philistines, the king of Moab, who fought against them. They cried out to the Lord, We've sinned. We've forsaken the Lord. We've served the Baals and the Astra. Now deliver us from the hands of our enemies and we'll serve you. Then the Lord sent Jerubbaal, which that's Gideon, Barak, Jephthah, Samuel. He delivered you from the hands of your enemies on every side so that you live securely. Now when you saw Nahash, the king of the Ammonites, was moving against you. No, we want a king to rule over us, even though the Lord your God is king. Now here's your king you've chosen, the one you've asked for. 
See that the Lord has set a king over you. If you fear the Lord and serve and obey Him and do not rebel against His commandments, if you both, you and the king who reigns over you, follow the Lord, good. But if you do not obey the Lord and you rebel against His commands, His hand will be against you as it, as it was with your fathers. <clears throat> you don't believe me? Stand still and see this great thing that the Lord is about to do before your eyes. Think about the faith of Samuel. It's not the wheat, is it not the wheat harvest now? That's May, June. From January through March is the rainy season. By the time April's there, if you've been in, if you've been to Israel in April, the grass is starting to turn brown. May, June, everything's dead. Because it's hot. I will call upon the Lord to send thunder and rain and you'll realize what an evil thing you did in the eyes of the Lord when you asked for it. Then Samuel called upon the Lord and that same day the Lord sent thunder and rain and all the people stood in awe of the Lord and Samuel. All the people said to Samuel, pray to the Lord God and your servants that your servants will not die. For we have added all of our sins to the evil of asking for a king. What's God's response? This isn't Samuel's response. This is God's response. Do not be afraid. You've done all this evil, yet do not turn away from the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Do not turn away from useless idols. They can do you no good, nor can they rescue you because they're useless. For the sake of His great name, the Lord will not reject His people. Because the Lord was pleased to make you His own. Far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by failing to pray for you. I will teach you the way that's good and right. Be sure to fear the Lord and serve Him faithfully with all your heart. Consider the great things He's done for you. Yet if you persist in doing evil, both you and your king will be swept away. Uh, Hosea... Um, Hosea, look at Hosea 13. Hosea 13. Another one of the prophets. Somebody gets here before I do. Go for it. Hosea, one of the last prophets. Hosea 13. I will destroy you, O Israel, because you're against me. You're against your helper. Where's your king that he may save you? Where are your rulers and all your towns to whom you said, Give me a king and princes. So in my anger, Josh should add these verses. I gave you a king, and in my wrath, I took him away. At the, at the top of my Bible, I've written, His grace is greater than all my sin. This is probably one of the best analogies for grace that there is in the Old Testament. I know Hesed is replete in the Old Testament. But God over and over and over took Israel and watched all their... I mean, I can't... Y'all, I can't imagine Baal worship, uh, Asherah worship. I can't imagine that and thinking that that is some kind of worship. Now, I know I have idols in my life. 
<laughs> I know that. I admit that. But God is saying, don't. I want you to worship me. And over and over, I don't care how bad you screw up, His grace is greater than all my sin. Questions? The only thing I meant to say that I didn't say is about the Dead Sea Scrolls. What the Dead Sea Scrolls did for us is they took, took uh, besides giving us extraneous little snippets like that, the Qumran community were the Essenes. Does anybody know who those guys are? The Essenes. The Essenes are people that set themselves apart. Holiness, hagios, means set apart. They didn't believe that the temple in Jesus' day was holy enough. So they left and went out to the desert. They went to Qumran. Does anybody see Qumran on there anywhere? It's, it's right in here where Qumran, Masada, all the things you can see the Dead Sea. You can see the Dead Sea. They went back up in the mountains and there's all these caves that are back in. And that's where the Dead Sea Scrolls were because they had their own community. They were setting themselves apart to be holy for God. As a matter of fact, some of them were ascetics. What's asceticism? Self-denial. There's a diary of a woman who's 90 years old living in Qumran. And she says, I, all these years, I've never let one drop of water touch my body. It's the idea that the body is the prison house of the soul. So if I buffet the body, kill the body, my soul can be free and be with it. These people were wackadoo. But, but, they, but they gave us the Dead Sea Scrolls. What does the Dead Sea Scrolls do for us? All it did was it predated everything we had back 600 years. Like we, there was a, uh, an extant copy of the book of Isaiah in the Dead Sea Scrolls from beginning to end. And it's dated 600 years earlier than anything else we have. And it's identical to everything we have. It didn't change one jot or tittle to quote Jesus. Uh, there's a rabbi, I was watching a rabbi late one night at Bill's RDC. He talks about taking his seven-year-old son to Mount Scopus to uh, the Hebrew University and watching him because inside there they have the scroll of Isaiah unrolled and this little seven-year-old boy is going up to him and he goes, a boy's crying out in... He didn't do that because it was this one. A boy's crying out in the wilderness. He's reading from a scroll that's 3,000 years old because the Hebrew dialect has not changed. If you've taken Greek and you go over all over uh, Israel, I can't read a flippant thing. Number one, it's written in capital. Did anybody, who, learned, who learned capital Greek? I didn't learn that. I learned Corne, lowercase. You can't read anything. It's just, it's pitiful. But this little seven-year-old kid can walk all over the scroll of Isaiah and read it. It's fabulous. Anybody else? Any questions? We're out of here. Thank you.